Hello, and welcome to Bright Lights, Big Data, a podcast about people, places, and data. I'm Tammy Armstrong. And I'm Mike Armstrong, and we're happy to have you back with us again. And today we're really excited to have uh, Des Moines City Council member Josh Mandelbaum here with us. It's great to be here. And we're excited to walk through our five questions. If you um, haven't been with us before, we have the same set of questions and really trying to dig into, in this instance, what Josh's role with City Council is, how that all works, and how that plays a part in how we create change change in our city. So Josh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and how did you get there? Yeah, gladly. So I'm a new Des Moines City Council member. So I've been on the council for, I guess it's almost six months. I was sworn in in January. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so I'm still figuring out exactly what I do. Sure. That the, the, the cliche about how the first first few months are like drinking from a fire hose really is true. There's a, lot, a lot coming at you. But I had a long-standing interest in policy and making our community work better. I grew up in this community and then I left and came back a couple of times. The The first time I left, I went away for, for college and then did a policy fellowship at the U.S. Department of Transportation uh, in the Secretary's Policy Office. And I thought knowing or doing policy well, you had to know politics. And I came back to work for the Iowa Democratic Party as a field organizer. And the interesting piece of this uh, is I thought I was going to help get John Norris elected to Congress. This was back in 2002. (laughs) And he was running uh, in what was then uh, the fourth congressional district, back when we still Mm -hmm. had five (laughs) congressional districts. And I was so confident that I was going to get John Norris elected to Congress and go work for him in D.C. that I sublet my apartment and left most of my stuff <laughs> back in D.C. Didn't get elected, and I ended up getting a, a job on the policy staff of Governor Vilsack and Lieutenant Governor Peterson. And that was a, a great job and really cemented my interest in policy and the impact that you can make if you help government work for people and help government work better. When they were not running for re-election, I went back to law school. So that was the second time I left. (laughs) I I went to the University of Iowa in Iowa City and was in private practice in the Quad Cities. And then I came back here to work for the Environmental Law and Policy Center. Kind of a fluke story how I got that job, too. I was (laughs) hiking in the woods in, in Canada. Oh. <laughs> and bumped into the executive director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center in a pretty remote area. <laughs> Got to know him and what the organization did, and, and that's how I ended up there. That's one way to network. <laughs> it worked out real well. And so for, for the past six years, I've been doing mostly clean energy and clean water work. It really is the work that I was doing on the water quality side of this that, that got me started looking at the city council position. One of the things I've come to believe is that the politics around water quality are really difficult, and we need to start changing the politics around water quality if we're going to have meaningful policy change. Mm -hmm. We had a very good example of how difficult and backwards the politics around water quality were here in Des Moines with what was going on around the Des Moines Water Works. Mm -hmm. In particular, the third board council member at the time, Councilwoman Hensley, joined what was essentially an ag front group Mm -hmm. that was attacking Des Moines Waterworks and Bill Stowe over the lawsuit. And that, to me, was the clearest illustration of how far apart the politics around water quality were from from good policy. And so that's how I 
got excited about the race, and the rest was history from there. Council covers so much. How did you really start to sink your teeth into all that? Yeah, what, one of the, the good things, so at the tail end of the campaign, I was at 70% time of my day job, and there's a lot there. And yeah. it's, not just, it's not just the issues that you have to learn. To get anything done, you've got to work with the six council members and the mayor, you have to work with the city staff and stakeholders and learning how all of that fits together. It's not just the issues, but it's all that mm -hmm. uh, history and interpersonal relationships. You talked a little bit about sort of state politics, and I'm curious how, as a city council member, how you interact with mm -hmm. sort of state-level politics. Do you have a role in that, or is that more of a sort of personal interest or choice? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. What the legislature does very much impacts us. So. For example, just this last legislative session, the omnibus energy bill that really guts energy efficiency programs, well, that's going to impact the city's ability to meet sustainability goals and do a whole host of things. It certainly will impact residents who want energy efficiency. So if you guys haven't done your home energy audit from MidAmerican, I encourage you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyone listening, if you haven't done your home energy audit from MidAmerican, do it in the next couple of months because it's going away by the mm. end of October. Another piece, there was legislation mm. that would ban speed cameras. Mm -hmm. And it's a really important tool for the city from a traffic safety perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, or for example, 63rd Street was closed for a chunk of the spring and traffic then diverts into one of our local neighborhoods, including down 56th Street, which goes right by an elementary school. Mm -hmm. yeah. The fact that we have speed cameras as a tool allowed allowed us to help keep traffic a little calmer and safer. So having that tool and the legislature could take that away from you, mm -hmm. uh, that's a big deal. And then there are bigger issues like the property tax backfill, mm -hmm. which could have mm -hmm. a huge impact on the bottom line of the city and our budget and the way we provide services. But it's just so interesting, you know, as we're teasing this out and learning along with our listeners. I mean, nothing works in a vacuum. It's mm -hmm. it's interconnected at these different levels. And as you say, like some of the options available are dependent on state level politics as well. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you had some of these or maybe coming from your constituents. Um, you know, what are some common misconceptions that come up about city council work? I think one of the common misconceptions is what the city does and doesn't do. Mm -hmm. uh, so sometimes people think we control the schools, and mm -hmm. that's really the school board's role. Or sometimes the city thinks that we uh, we provide social services, and that's the county's role in a, mm -hmm. a lot of respects. Mm -hmm. So one of the common misconceptions is, is just the role. You know, one one thing is we, we've got a, a weak mayor system here, mm -hmm. uh, which means that the city manager position is a really important position in, in this community. And that's not necessarily the way, particularly if you've come from another community or even when you learn about city councils in, in textbooks or use mm -hmm. the big cities like in New York City or Chicago. I mean, a lot of bigger cities have strong mayor systems. Mm -hmm. And so what you can do as a council member or mayor in those systems is a little bigger than what you can do in, say, Des Moines. Mm -hmm. And so that's sometimes a misconception, too. Yeah, I think before I really started paying attention to things, I didn't realize that cities weren't all just kind of run the same, you know, that like a mayor is a mayor, you know, and that it, it is different. <laughs> Moving from that, uh, can you tell us a little bit about why the community should care about 
city council and the work that they do. The city council has the most direct impact on a person that any level of government does. You know, day in and day out, the things that impact you from the quality of your roads to your police and fire service to how your community is designed and revitalized, the strength of your neighborhoods, the local park that you visit, the library that you rely on, those are all city services. And if the city is not doing their job right, all of those things suffer and in turn your quality of life suffers. So the city impacts you as directly <laughs> as any form of government can. Mm -hmm. And if you don't care about having a city that listens to its residents and therefore by listening is run well and serves people well, it's the most basic form of engagement you can have. Yeah, and I mean, even to a slightly more hyper-local degree, you are not an at-large member. You have a specific ward as well, right? I do have a, a specific ward. That's actually one of the things that's that's been really interesting, being on the council, acclimating to that dynamic. Because I, I do have a specific ward, and one of the ways that the council addresses things is the ward council members are responsible particularly for constituent services or issues that arise in that ward, mm -hmm. they're expected to take the lead. Mm -hmm. And that makes intuitive sense to me. That's just a way to break down workload. And I, I get that part of my job is advocating for the ward, but not at the expense of the city. Mm -hmm. Sure. And that's one of the, I think, a fundamental tension in mm -hmm. council and the way things currently work. And that's been a really interesting dynamic to try and learn that balance and learn how others approach that balance. Yeah. Like you mentioned, it, it impacts your daily life so much. Um, so how can people keep up to date on what's going on? I mean, attending council meetings it is an option. Uh, they can be long and boring <laughs> and hard to follow sometimes. But the good thing is council agendas are posted online. And it, if you really want to geek out on what the council does, you can watch our meetings after the fact because we, mm -hmm. we post recordings of those online. There are tons of boards and commissions and different ways to be involved from serving on the, the park board and you're, mm -hmm. you had a previous guest who serves on the park board. There's even an affiliated organization, Friends of Des Moines Parks. I think council members are particularly accessible. Mm -hmm. I, in fact, do a lot of constituent meetings. Pretty much anyone who has requested a meeting so far has gotten one. All right. Uh, I'm sometimes a little odd about the times because I, I try and be home for bedtime. Uh, can we understand can understand that. that. <laughs> I, I do better some nights than others, but I'll, I'll schedule meetings at 8.30 and 9 o'clock at mm -hmm. night so that I can be mm -hmm. home for, for bedtime. But engaging with your council members is, is something that you can do to stay informed and, and get informed. And the city needs to do a little work on our website, which is in process. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but hopefully we'll have a better website and a little more active engagement on social media. People are welcome to get signed up for my newsletter, uh, which I say there's a regular occurrence of sending it out, but it's not quite <laughs> like that. It's sort of when I when I get to it, I yeah. try and do it every few weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes better than others. Uh, I try and give people a pretty broad flavor of things I've been up to and things I'm working on. Yeah, it was honestly one of the early surprises for us when we moved here. So we're not originally from. Iowa. Most recently, we had lived in Raleigh and Portland, Oregon. And it was kind of amazing as we started to get more interested and involved in our communities. And when we started to look in this podcast, especially just 
how accessible mm -hmm. a lot of council members and staff are here. Um, and that feels so different from the other places we've been, even places that are smaller than Des Moines as well. I think it's a really positive thing about our city is that, yes, you can reach out to council and they do get back to you. Yeah, it's really, it's really been refreshing. <laughs> yeah. So your, your first six months on city council, um, what are you working on? What are you most excited about right now? During the campaign, Amos had, had this forum and had a whole host of issues that they wanted candidates to address, one of which was related to the juvenile diversion program in Des Moines that had gone away. They wanted help getting that to come back. During the campaign, I committed to that, and I started working on that almost right after I was elected. And the first step was trying to figure out exactly why it had gone away, because Des Moines had interpreted a, a change in the law differently than some other communities, and it prevented Des Moines from continuing its program. Mm. And figured that out, and then worked to get corrective language in the judicial branch bill, which ended up happening, and that made its way through the process and was signed into law a couple weeks after adjournment up at the Capitol. So that was that's, that's incredible. One thing. Yeah. <laughs> to me, that's an illustration of the process working because mm -hmm. people advocated and advocated during the campaign, followed up with their council member after the campaign to hold us accountable. And I was really happy that we were able to find the solution and make that happen. That's one, one little piece. Uh, another, by state law, you're required to have gender balance for any board and commission that is created under state law. Planning and zoning is one, the Zoning Board of Adjustment, the Park and Rec Board, there, there are a number of them. And even though we have that requirement, right now the Planning and Zoning Commission has 10 men and five women. Mm. <laughs> which yeah. <laughs> leaves something to be yeah. desired from the, the balance perspective. Not only that, but we have term limits. There are two terms of five years each. If your term is expired, the ordinance says that you can stay on until your successor is appointed and confirmed. <laughs> that loophole has been read that if there's never a successor appointed, yeah. you, you can essentially stay on indefinitely. So we have five members of the planning and zoning who are sitting on expired terms, one of whom has been serving I think since 2002, so has... Just a little overdue. <laughs> yes, has essentially served an entire additional term mm -hmm. and then some. Mm -hmm. Part of the fact that there were all these expired terms at the same time gives you a flexibility to maybe fix the gender balance right. at the same time. And that's a piece that I'm working on, is trying to get the city to fix these issues. And I, I wanted to talk about sort of the big picture yeah. opportunity that, that I see. We've had a lot particularly downtown in terms of growth and revitalization. And in some respects, that's a model. It didn't all happen by accident. There were people who had vision. The city helped direct policy to focus investment and, and really hone in on helping transform the downtown. What I see as an opportunity is we've got great neighborhoods, great infrastructure, great employment base, and we can do more to revitalize more of our, our community and our neighborhoods. And I think that really needs to be a focus because I think you need strong corridors that are bikeable, walkable, mm -hmm. transit accessible, and there has to be a focus on making those corridors mixed income and inclusive. Mm -hmm. And that's really where, if you do those right, they can be anchors to neighborhoods, mm -hmm. and then you, you can really invest and 
transform the community and strengthen neighborhoods that way. I mean, Ingersoll's is a really good model for what can happen on a corridor. The University Corridor is another place that I'm really excited about. And thinking about it as a corridor, sometimes that goes beyond the, the city limits, right? right. Because I mean, you can drive from Pleasant Hill to Clive on University. Yeah. You've got Drake in the middle of that, that corridor and sort of the connection between Drake and downtown as part of that corridor. And if you really invest in that corridor and, and provide some vision around that, I think you, you could see a tremendous transformation mm -hmm. along that corridor and the neighborhoods around that corridor too. Definitely. Uh, so that to me is a great opportunity. And then, you know, thinking about other quarters like Southwest Ninth, you know, there's tremendous potential there and the city has assets along that corridor. You have McCray Park, which is a great city park that we're investing in and hopefully we'll invest a bit more in. And then you end at Blank Golf Course and the Blank Park Zoo at the, mm -hmm. the southern end of that, that corridor. Mm -hmm. And there's a tremendous potential there as well. So that to me is something that I'm really excited about pursuing in a big picture way uh, to guide work of the council and to really focus on how you continue to revitalize our community. That sounds very exciting and very much up your alley too. Yeah, <laughs> we've been in the Wayland Park area for a few years now and just, you know we've seen it as well of just those little neighborhood centers that become so important the mm -hmm. places that you can walk to our daughter is turning one this week which seems impossible yeah <laughs> so fast but I mean we're gonna be walking around with her and we're gonna want you know places to go to um, so that certainly gets me excited yeah well and hopefully we're looking at some of the transformation on, on university, shrinking mm -hmm. the lanes, you know, making it hopefully a bit safer by doing that. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Adding additional sidewalk as well. Uh, there's that gap yeah. by Waveland Golf Course, and yeah. uh, getting sidewalk along there will be a, a nice amenity. To they literally, when they have like concerts over there in the summer, they have somebody on a golf cart to help take you across the street. Yeah, they'll drive you across <laughs> they will the university drive you. golf cart. The traffic count on university does not justify the, the width of the road. And that to me, when, when you start transforming the road, it, it can support so much else, right? You make it a safer road for people to access and all of a sudden people walk to the retail places mm -hmm. and bike and it's not just a driving destination and it expands their customer base and in turn hopefully leads to some vibrancy because you have that nice little strip of mm -hmm. potential businesses right at that Pope Boulevard and University yeah. area. Yeah. Uh, let's take a step back and ask you our final question. Uh, what should we have for dinner tonight? Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're doing <laughs> this on a Wednesday. So you should have Grateful Chef, which I don't mm -hmm. know if you know Grateful Chef no. or not. Do not. So it's, it's prepared food. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Brandy Luters is is the Grateful Chef. Uh, and uh, she makes awesome prepared food, and you can just order the food and you go pick it up on Wednesdays. Oh, uh, okay. It's online. It varies from week to week what she makes, and then you just warm it up at home. Love it. Uh, and it's absolutely delicious. It's fantastic. And it very much relates to the rest of our conversation <laughs> because one of the challenges of running for office and serving is you have less time. Yep. <laughs> and one of the ways that 
my family figured out how to cope with that as we started getting Grateful Chef uh, during my city council campaign. That's awesome. <laughs> and that was one of the things that helped us cope because we had this wonderful meal already done, or sometimes we'd get you know several meals depending because mm-hmm. you can size it and, and then you'd have leftovers. So that was a lifeline for us. Yeah. And it's delicious. So. That's I'd, excellent. I'd encourage you to get Grateful Chef. I love it when we don't just get like a single recipe, but it's like, here's how you can continue eating for a long time. Because <laughs> same thing, whenever we get stressed out, like planning meals is the first thing to go. I love that. Um, and repping a, a local business too. So that's, that's always great. Well, thank you so much for your time and your thoughtful answers and for being with us on the show. Yeah, absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. We had a great time talking with Josh Mandelbaum, and one of the things that he mentioned is this idea of corridors. One of the changes that are coming to our neighborhood is University Avenue. The city of Des Moines is looking at changing most of that corridor, but the first phase is going to be from 48th Avenue to 63rd, and that stretch is generally four lanes, two in each direction, and they're looking at how they can turn that into three lanes, so one in each direction and a center turn lane. This is a pretty common transformation that cities can do, but there's a lot of interesting details in it. The most significant improvement for this sort of change from four to three lanes is in terms of safety. So you minimize the number of conflict points. So you know if you're on a side street and you're turning left out onto university, you have to go across two lanes in one direction and still look for traffic coming from the other direction. Anytime you're turning across multiple lanes adds a lot more likelihood of a crash or collision. You know, human behavior, we always want to think that it's better on the other side, so people tend to jockey a lot, changing lanes back and forth, looking for the faster lane, and that also increases the likelihood of crashes and collisions, especially when it comes to people walking. So when you're, you know, waiting at a crosswalk, that first lane of traffic may stop for you. And it's so much more dangerous if there's that second lane going in the same direction because it's hard to see past that car. So one stops and you step out into the road and the other one doesn't. Mm -hmm. So for university, there is the north-south trail on the side of the cemetery. There's Windsor Elementary out that way as well. So there are pedestrian crossings, even though for the most part it's more of a connector street. But even for people driving, massive safety improvements. But what people don't think about is that it's actually a lot more efficient to have a three-lane road than a four-lane road. Or maybe what people do think about is, oh, it's going to be so much slower, you're taking away lanes. That's the immediate thing. And it's such common sense, like you're removing a lane, it's going to get worse um, for the idea of how long it takes to get somewhere. But because people tend to jockey, I mean... I am terrible at choosing the right line at the grocery store (laughs) of which one's going to be quickest. And so if it was easy to jump line to line, I probably would be doing that. (laughs) But those things don't actually speed up traffic that much. It increases the amount of speeding, but the overall traffic flow is not increased. When you have two lanes going in the same direction, the cars tend to stagger. They don't like driving side by side. So a lot of the extra capacity you would get from that lane is lost. And also, you know, on four-lane roads, especially when they don't have any sort of center turn lane, the left lane is basically worthless a lot of the times because if one person wants to turn left, they're just sitting in traffic 
so people have to stop behind him and then do dangerous maneuvers of trying to pull around them really quick, merging into traffic. So you don't actually get a lot of the benefits of having that fourth lane, which is why speeding decreases when you go down to three lanes. But within a certain level, say 15,000 cars per day or less, which is most of the roads in Des Moines, you can make this switch and you're still able to push the same number of cars through. And sometimes more than you could before, but in most cases it's not a significant change for volume. Speeding decreases because the speed is set by slower drivers. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's going speed limit, the person behind them also has to go the speed limit, Mm -hmm. even if they want to go 10 over. And now you have this turn lane where cars can move out of the way when they're turning and traffic can keep going. So there's these big safety benefits, but this is a much more efficient use of space specifically for people driving, let alone benefits to anything else. And that's really interesting to me. And another one of those instances where it really matters how you measure something. It's counterintuitive for a lot of people of how this would work. Yeah, and if you think about maybe this comes up in grade school math problems of, you know, how fast can you go? Or if you're just thinking about cars as particles in a system, trying to move through just like you would water in a pipe or or air in in a tube or something like that then yeah the bigger the tube the bigger the pipe the faster things can go the the more liquid or the more particles you can move through that system and so if you think of cars as that same kind of problem then you're going to say yeah reducing lanes is a problem but it's not actually as analogous as you would think it is maybe you can start with that as as a grounding, but once you start really looking at your model, you're gonna see it fall apart really quickly because of those human behaviors of the jockeying and the turning and all of that. So you can start with this particles in a system sort of mathematical model, maybe computer model, but when you start comparing it to reality and start accommodating for little quote-unquote exceptions, you're going to actually start getting it a little closer to reality and and hopefully moving away from measures like a volume to capacity ratio, which I, in my limited Googling, uh, saw come <laughs> up as, as one way of measuring traffic and congestion where you're saying a given stretch of road has a capacity and so then you're measuring how much is actually being used versus that capacity. Again, particles in a system, that sounds great, right? You know, you've got cars coming into the system, how many are actually getting through it, then if you've got a really low volume to capacity, a few cars, you might say that, well, it's, it's going really slowly. Um, but the problem is if you've got very few cars moving through, it could just be because it's congested and they're moving very slowly, or because it's not a peak time for traffic. There are no cars even trying to get through there. Particles in a system, you're probably going to assume that you've got a constant influx of cars if you're not careful, if you're not really thinking about the construct of your model. It makes a really good case for being watchful and saying, yes, we can construct models and we can start with simplifying assumptions and we can build up from there, but you have to check it against reality. If you mm. if you make a change and you are trying to see if it's successful, you can't just necessarily look at your 
volume to capacity ratio and say, okay, the numbers are good, you maybe just need to look at the road for like a week (laughs) constantly and say, what does this actually look like? How are people actually using this in ways that we wouldn't have thought to measure or that might be more complex than we can measure easily? Yeah, kind of ground truth it. When I'm thinking about this, volume to capacity ratio is something that's used in transportation measurements, or at least a used who are starting to move away from it. But you think about those particles in a system, and that could parallel transportation. You know, it is certainly a system. Cars could certainly act as particles. But that works only when you think about a single lane interstate. That actually functions right. in that manner. Which but doesn't exist. <laughs> for, some, for something like university, you want to push through as many cars as possible. Like that's you know, one type of particle, but you also have additional particles for people walking, biking, yes. taking dart, doing freight drop-offs or like UPS trucks. So now we have blue particles and red particles and square particles and and we're getting more complicated. (laughs) And increasing the volume of one set of those particles, if we increase the number of cars on the road or increase the speed of the cars on the road, it's in direct competition or sort of contradiction with the goals of the overall road. It's going to make it less safe for people walking people driving and that's one of those like if you're measuring volume that's great but like for a road we can't measure only volume we have this broad spectrum of at times competing Mm -hmm. goals for what this system is supposed to do something like volume to capacity ratio or level of service or however you want to measure this that one measurement is not going to capture what we actually want our streets to do yeah all of this is not to say that You shouldn't even try, obviously. I mean, it's just keep tweaking and don't be afraid to question the metrics that you're using and try to get as close to reality as you can. I mean, in a business context, we do this a lot too. We have tables of columns and rows that we're analyzing and we're creating models and we're testing against a different set of rows But when we put it into practice, or maybe we do a proof of concept, we want to actually go back, all the way back to the source system, you know? Even if we're looking at the back-end data, I always open up the front-end too, you know? Like, am I going to look at my CRM system and just open up a case and just see what was in there? And just see what I was missing uh, before, maybe what I might not have seen just from the rows and columns. Put something into practice, watch it in action, because you just never know what you might pick up that you wouldn't see just in the data. Yeah, and I like that idea of ground truthing. You want to build your system, test it, look at what you're going for, and then go back and check if it's having the impact you want it to have, or seeing if the metrics are usually actually match up with what you want. So the congestion metrics are saying this one road is a big problem. You're like, all right, well, we'll make a capacity change. When you look at it and actually it's just that there's this one company here that doesn't have enough room for their trucks to back in to the loading dock. And so they block all of the traffic on (laughs) that for a set amount of time. And it's not that there's not enough capacity. It's just all about how that road is used. Yeah. So it's a much different change than you were originally thinking. Um, I think it's like happened to us on the way to work the other day. (laughs) Um, And the other thing that I think governments are getting a little bit better at, but I'm certainly jealous of the private sector and sort of businesses get to do this a lot more, is the idea that we need to be iterative. 
Mm-hmm. We can look at how university is now and when they were doing public meetings about it, especially in front of Windsor Elementary, people were very worried about how much worse traffic is going to be mm-hmm. going from four lanes to three lanes. But all of the comments they were making were about how it also doesn't work the way it is now. Mm. That it's not safe, it's not comfortable, there's already mm-hmm. traffic jams and, you know, issues with school drop-off and pick-up. And we have the tools to do it, but we don't have the acceptance of risk to go out and iterate. Mm-hmm. So let's pull up the paint on it, put a new lane configuration out there and paint. We'll measure it and we'll ground truth it and see how it works, because we know how it's working isn't great now. So we need to change things, and maybe that's not the right change, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying things. So it was really fun hearing Josh focus on uh, nodes and corridors. We're really excited about that for our neighborhood, and there's a lot of interesting little details in it. I'm sure we'll talk about nodes and corridors again, and for me, we'll probably talk about traffic congestion again at some point. But. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks again for listening. In the show notes, we'll be sure to include um, some of the things we talked about with Josh. We'll have a link to his newsletter that he mentioned, as well as a link to his suggestion for where we should eat. And we're working on our next episode. Uh, in the meantime, let us know, you know what questions do you guys have? Maybe future guests that we'll have or just for us. Yeah. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at BLBDPod. And until next time.